In Pursuit of Plants. Hey, it's Kim here. It's my turn to do the podcast this month. Last month, which was October 2019, I attended the Herbal History Research Network annual conference. Uh, if you haven't heard about it, please check it out at www.herbalhistory.org. It's a fantastic conference. So in fact, it's a network that brings together researchers of herbal history from all over Britain and beyond. And we have an annual conference where we have a load of speakers talking about their research. And that's where I met Dr. Cassandra Quave. You're about to hear about her. She's an amazing researcher in the US who works on the pharmacology and ethnobotany of plants. But she also runs a research lab called the Quave Research Group. And if you want to check that out, check out her website, etnobotanica.us, E-T-N-O-B-O-T-A-N-I-C-A.us. That's etnobotanica.us. And from there, where she also publishes all the papers and all the information about her research, she also has a really amazing podcast called Foodie Pharmacology, which delves into the research and the science and the history behind common plants and medicines. So do check that out. And as usual, we'll be posting links to both of those on the associated blog page, which you'll find at www.inpursuitofplants.co.uk. So we're welcoming Dr. Cassandra Quave, curator of the Emory University Herbarium and assistant professor of dermatology and human health. Welcome, Cassandra. Thank you so much for agreeing to do our podcast. Um, and thanks for swapping podcasts as well. <laughs> thanks so much, Kim, for having me on. So um, in pursuit of plants, we we're very interested in how people both research what their research around medicinal plants looks like on a day-to-day basis and kind of how they got there. So I don't know if you wanted to start and telling us about your interest in medicinal plants and ethnobotany. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess the way I describe myself is as a medical ethnobotanist with a drug discovery twist, right? So um, I have a longstanding fascination with medicinal plants and with nature in general. I spent a lot of my childhood um, outdoors kind of wandering the wild um, swampy lands and pinelands of South Florida where I grew up. And um, I also became really fascinated with microbiology from really the first moment that my mom brought home a microscope from school for me to use in my third grade science fair project. So I was looking at little critters that um, are swimming around in pond water, and it just really captured um, my imagination. So um, as I went through school, I got really interested in the dynamic between um, these elements of nature between microbes and plants, and then also with plants and people. And this is where ethnobotany comes in, because ethnobotany is the science of, um, well, it's been described as a science of survival, and it's really all about studying how people interact with plants. And so um, what I've done in the end is create this focus in my research path on um, studying Um, how people use plants as medicine, and in particular, how do they use plants in medicine to treat infectious diseases that are caused by microorganisms. That's so interesting. So what did you study first as your undergrad? Yeah, so I um, completed a double major in biology and anthropology um, at Emory University, where I currently work um, today. 
Um, I was also pre-med, so I was kind of on the, the track to become a physician um, in, in, during my undergraduate um, time. But this experience in the Amazon really changed my path. I went down for a period of two six-week visits to the Peruvian Amazon um, between my junior and senior year of college. And not only did I fall even deeper in love with nature and with how people use nature as medicine, but I kind of had this revelation that where my future laid was not necessarily in the practice of medicine, but in the development of medicine. So it sounds like you fell in love, not just with how people use plants, but the plants themselves. So a little bit of people and plants rather than just yeah, one of the other. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's a, there was a profile piece that um, was written on our work um, back in 2016 in the New York times magazine. And, you know, the, the, journalist who did a lovely job describing um, both the field and kind of our approach to work, he described a scene where I'm basically talking to plants. And I said to myself, I don't do that. I don't talk to plants. But then I, I kind of paid more attention to what I do. And I, I absolutely do. I greet them as I come into contact with them. Because I just, I feel such a connection to plants, and especially to old plants. Um, I've been in the UK a, a few times uh, this fall. And uh, I was able to visit the Fortingall U in Scotland, which is one of the uh, you know incredibly old, um, thousands of years old yew um, uh, tree, which is used you know as a as a medicine to treat cancer. And just touching, just putting my hand on that plant, it's just you can just feel the history and um, the power of these creatures that, um, in some cases, can can live for millennia. And, um, yeah, so I guess I do feel a very personal connection to plants, and um, they definitely stoke my curiosity. Well, I'm going to tell you, you're not alone. I speak to plants as well, so I don't, <laughs> I don't think there's anything to worry about. I think one of the things that is important for people is if you feel um, a relationship with plants, you're more likely to preserve and engage with it, because in history felt more people have often thought as being more like above plants and what can they give to us but the more we engage we can see what can we give to them and we'll all be living in a better society I think. No absolutely and I mean really there's there's so much power in educating yourself. I find that if I understand you know how people have used a certain species as food or medicine or as a tool um, or in art or music it just makes that connection even deeper because, you know, you can really see how how it can um, be applied in your own life and how relevant it is to, to, your, to yourself. And so one of the things I've really tried to do more of, um, especially on these kind of, you know, botanical walkabouts that I go on is, is learn more about um, wild edible foods and, and wild medicines um, in my travels and, and, and try to... Um, harvest and create new new dishes um, from some of those wild foods mm, and actually I should have said it at the beginning but I'll signpost it now that your podcast which we swapped on is called foodie pharmacology and it's an incredibly fascinating um, listen about food and flavors and the chemistry behind foods and how they're all used so I will be linking that for people to go and sign up to and subscribe to immediately after as a is you know absolutely fantastic listen thanks so much yeah. so thank you <laughs> no worries so maybe we could talk a little bit about research now and how you've been combining this love of plants and culture and your ethno ethnobotany and 
anthropology with your pharmacological work. Have you got any recent stories that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, so in my in my job um, here at Emory, in addition to teaching courses on food and health and on medicinal plants, I also lead a large um, dynamic uh, research group. It's known as Quave Research Group. And um, in this group, we have scientists that are trained in analytical chemistry, so people that use tools like um, NMR and mass spectrometry, um, or HPLC and all these different kind of organic chemistry techniques. We have a pharmacologist that does more of the biological assays, microbiologist, botanist, um, and many, many students. And so what's, what's I think, unique about our, our approach is that we intentionally involve people from point zero that have diverse skills and interests, and we work together in a, in a very team-driven um, kind of way. And so some of the things that, that the questions that we're asking is, number one is we're documenting the uses of wild plants as medicine in some of our different field sites. So we do field research in the Balkans, um, particularly in, in Albania and Kosovo. We do field research in the Mediterranean um, basin, um, ranging from Italy, and we have new collaborations emerging now in Morocco and in Lebanon. Um, we also collect plants in Southeast U.S., so in Florida and Georgia. And in these cases, we're driving our, our collections based on historic records of plant use because you just don't find the same level of plants um, in use currently by people as you would um, in other parts in the Mediterranean or in the Balkans. Um, and so we collect these plants. We have over 600 species and um, more than 1,900 extracts that are made from these species. And we're asking the following questions. Is number one, okay, in the field, how are people using them? Um, number two is, is there some scientific basis for their use? Do they work against whatever the, the pharmacological target is? And um, which compounds are responsible for that activity? And, you know, the bigger translational question is, can these be leveraged or developed into a medicine um, that could be disseminated on a more broad basis? And so two examples of some recent projects I could talk about are um, our work on the Brazilian pepper tree, um, also known as Shinus terebinthifolia. This is a, an invasive, noxious weed in Florida, but it's actually a, a valuable medicine in other countries, including Brazil. Um, what we've studied on this particular plant is we looked back to historic records, even going back to the 1600s, and found that the fruits of the plant, and it's also known as the Christmas berry or the Christmas tree plant in Florida, um, because of these really beautiful, bright, bright red fruits, um, you also have these very deep green leaves. So it kind of, you know, has this look of the holidays about it. It also happens to be in fruit at the end of November, um, which, you know, coincides nicely with the holidays. And um, you may know this fruit actually as um, it's also sold. It's also sold as the um, red peppercorn, but it's not in the black. It's not related at all to black pepper. It's actually in the Anacardiaceae family or the mango or poison ivy family. Um, yeah. So, 
I heard your podcast on the peppercorn, which is really good. And and so the red peppercorn that we get is actually the tree you're studying. Yeah, it's this and, and another species as well. There's also Shinus mole. So this is Shinus terebinthifolia is the one that we focus on in the lab, but the the um, it's also been used in that context. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So when you harvest it, I mean, it's incredibly pungent, kind of stings the eyes. It, there's a reason they call it pepper tree, because it is like you're chopping up pepper. And um, what fascinated me when we looked at the historic literature is that the fruits were being applied as a poultice to treat these non-healing ulcers and wounds and kind of infected open wound beds. And in my area of research, we're really focused on finding new solutions to the antibiotic resistance crisis. So um, there's a huge, urgent, unmet need right now to come up with new compounds to fill the drug discovery pipeline um, as we look for solutions to um, antibiotic resistance. And so when I hear about plants or I read about plants that are being used to treat these kind of longstanding infected wounds, we get really interested. And in this particular plant, what we found was that the compounds present in the fruits don't actually kill or slow down the growth of bacteria. That's how antibiotics work. They work by killing rapidly dividing cells, and that's how you get rid of the infection. But we also have a lot of side effects in some cases from broad-spectrum antibiotics where you can lead to a state called dysbiosis or imbalance, um, for example, in your your gut, um, that can lead to other problems. But what was interesting here is here we have a plant with interesting molecules but these molecules don't actually inhibit the growth of the bacteria. Instead, what they do is they block the way that the bacteria communicate with one another because as single-celled organisms, they behave differently when they're in a group versus when they're alone. So as you can imagine, there's more power in numbers, and so when they recognize that many of their um you know, brethren are nearby, they can then change their gene expression profile such that they can, you know, as a group produce a lot of these toxins that cause the tissue damage um, in an infection. And um, what was really cool about the pepper tree compounds that we found was that they actually blocked that whole process. So, you know, another way of describing it is like taking the teeth out of the dog's bite, right? The bacteria are there. They just can't harm you. They can't bite you. Um, And so that was fascinating to me that we can learn from historic herbal remedies that maybe killing the cause of the infection outright, um, that's one approach. But perhaps there are other approaches that we can learn about through investigation of these traditional medicines. And that's uh, an interesting question, isn't it? Because it has been difficult to study some plants just because of the way that in vitro or in the science uh, laboratory to study how they have an effect on the body isn't quite as direct as it might be seen in a, a Petri dish. And that's what you've shown there is it's not directly killing the bacteria, but it's affecting how they communicate. And perhaps in the past, plants may have been discarded because they weren't seen as effective for conditions yeah. that they were being done but perhaps they are really good potential sources of medicine and there's that issue of problems being able to test them in the laboratory um but uh, that inhibit this research yeah i think that 
We've definitely faced historic bias when it comes to antibiotic discovery in that we've really only been asking one question. Can we find substances that kill? And um, what this work has led me to do is to try and take a broader perspective of is my goal to kill the bacteria or is my goal to resolve the infection in the patient? And that's the goal of traditional medicine, right? They may not even know what bacteria are, but their goal is to heal the patient. And so that's the perspective that we're trying to take in the lab, that perhaps there's more than one way to tackle this problem. And just perhaps we might find some clues to those other ways through investigation of these botanicals used in the historic and even current day treatment of infections. I think one thing that's interesting that many um, people don't necessarily realize is that in the developing world, you know, we you can have um, the majority of the population completely reliant on plants as their primary form of medicine. And so in addition to the goal of trying to identify new medicines or new sources of medicine for the, the public at large, you know, I think another important um, role that we have to play in our research is also to return knowledge of how these plants work back to communities, back to the people that are using them. Um, Because again, it is a major form of medicine for many, many people across the globe. And it would be helpful to know, are there toxicities that we've identified? Um, Are there potential ways or mechanisms of action, ways that these are working, um, and sharing that knowledge is really um, important to us. The other thing that I think is really exciting is that today we have at our fingertips much more advanced methodologies and techniques and tools um, to really get into the complexity of plants because plants don't act like, um, you know, a typical single compound drug does. They produce many, many different compounds. In a single leaf, you might have a thousand different molecules, right? And so they're using Mm -hmm. this combination of different molecules to get their desired effect. And that effect, of course, is defense of the plant or to attract pollinators or seed dispersers, or basically it's the chemical language of the plant. And sometimes we get lucky in finding that that chemical language can also be important to human health as well. It's an interesting like human hack on plant chemicals that weren't necessarily intended for that use. But what your answer has neatly um, led into was this idea about the benefit sharing of if you go somewhere and you find out about a plant that's being used by local people, how that's shared back to the the community, especially in recent years with um, really well-needed laws about the Nagoya Protocol, which will link for people to read if they haven't heard about before but is about protecting the intellectual property of genetic resources from provider countries to users who might be from another country. And in the talk last week you gave to us, you had some really, really interesting answers of how you've been working with those. Could you tell me about those, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll first just start by giving a bit of background on the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Nagoya Protocol. So the Nagoya Protocol, which is part of the CBD, is um, an international piece of legislation that's geared towards ensuring that we don't have this colonial perspective 
in developing products or genetic resources from different countries without ensuring that they also receive equitable benefit sharing. And so, in other words, it's the, the idea is to protect um, against this kind of concept of biopiracy, of going in and taking information or resources without ensuring that benefit goes back to the local people. Um, and this legislation, to be honest, for many scientists has been very scary because there's hasn't always been a lot of information out there on how to properly um, implement this. Um, but again, I think we're at a unique um, time now where more information is now available on the on their website. There are examples of how to set up um, these kinds of agreements. There is um, there's country contact information you can have in place as well. And so some of the um, one perspective that I take on on benefit sharing really is to begin with day one. And um, the reality is, in many of the places where we work, it could be that none of the things that we're studying ever result in a commercializable idea or commercializable product. Um, so how do you ensure that still local people benefit from your work in their community or in their country or with their resources? And um, some of the things that we've done is through establishing these collaborative research agreements with universities in the countries where we're working, um, we're also helping to improve the capacity for research in different countries. And we have a couple of really nice capacity building projects we've already completed, um, for example, in Kosovo, and um, which involve training of students and helping them to establish their own microbiology lab and um, providing some assessments on their herbarium and providing pathways to enhance their ability to study the amazing biodiversity they have in their country. Um, and this is, you know, an incredibly beneficial collaboration also for my research group because it's exposing them to um, international researchers and also to the techniques that they have. Um, so there's exchange happening there. Um, some of the other things we've done is um, I always try and return the things that we've documented in our ethnobotanical studies back to the communities, and we've done this through um, community-engaging workshops, um, usually co-organized with local cultural um, heritage groups. Um, we've I've also written a book um, that was distributed freely to over a thousand households in the area where I did my field research in the Volta de Alto Bradano region in, in southern Italy. Um, and this was written in Italian, in English, and with Arboresh or ethnic Albanian names of plants because that's what they had requested. Um, and they wanted to have something that they could share not only with their children but also with um, potential tourists and family members in different countries. Um, and we also constructed a an ethnobotanical garden in one of the communities that's used in, in education. So these are some small ways, at even at the front end, where we can return knowledge, but also work with local partners to ensure that this knowledge is being saved and um, passed down from generation to generation, and at the same time provide opportunities um, for students and professors from different parts of the world to get training in these more advanced um, techniques uh, for the assessment of the medicinal potential of, of plants. Excellent, thank you. So you've also been working recently on um, some really interesting uses of ginkgo, which are different from how we might think of using ginkgo in our Western herbal medicine practice. Um, could you tell us about that? Yeah, so this was a project that was actually spearheaded by one of my undergraduate students. Um, 
And uh, she's able to read um, in, in Chinese um, block text and was in the library here. And I basically sent her there to look at some of these historic um, herbal texts going back on um, that, that really focused on traditional Chinese medicine. And she's, after she spent a few days in the library going through these collections, and there was one in particular by a scholar known as Li Shizhen. And what she found was really interesting. So when you think about ginkgo um, biloba today, you might immediately think of the medicinal uses of the leaves. But mm-hmm. in this text that was originally published in 1587 um, by Li Shizhen, um, it's called the Bengkau Gang Mu, and I apologize if I'm butchering the name. Um, but uh, we had an 1826 block um, copy that was present in our library. And what she found was that there were actually a, a number of different topical therapies that used ginkgo, but not the leaves. Instead, they were using the kernel or this kind of the, the inner part of the fruit. And so, for example... They were taking um, uh, the the this kernel by cutting it open and rubbing onto affected parts of the skin that had patches or nodules in the face and scalp. There were other examples of pestling the raw ginkgo and applying it to genital ulcers. Um, they were using this to treat wound abscesses from dog bites by chewing up this ginkgo kernel and applying it to the area. Um, there were also other applications, again, for furuncles, abscesses, boils. I get really excited about abscesses and boils, any kind of oozing, pustulant wound. And when we read about it in the historic literature, because typically that's indicative of something that's, you know, got a bacterial infection involvement. And so it's a great place to start when we do our drug discovery work. And yes, beyond just a cut, it's the next stage of, of infection. Exactly. And so when you have this number of different things that, you know, um, is, is um, implicated um, for likely to be infectious process of the skin and soft tissues, that signals to us this could be something interesting. And so what we did in this project is we um, created extracts. She actually created a number of different extracts against um, of, of different parts of the ginkgo plant. So not only the, the kernels, but also the seed coats, the branches and leaves and so on, because we wanted to compare and see, you know, is there a difference in the bioactivities of these? And what we found was that indeed there was um, some activity um, both against Staphylococcus aureus or staph infections and also against the causative pathogen for acne. And um, there was also some activity on biofilm production. Biofilms are basically kind of this slimy, sticky matrix that bacteria produce that enables them to stick to surfaces. And these are really important for infections. Um, but what we also found is that there was some some toxicity. So some, there's some cost to use of this um, by testing this on our human skin cell lines, and um, which may be why... Um, the traditional use of this was as a topical kind of prepared by chewing or pestling and applying it topically. So um, there's this cost-benefit analysis you have to do to resolve the infection, um, but you know, also knowing there might be some toxicity to the tissues as well. It was more for external preparations rather than internal. So yeah. you wouldn't recommend anybody to go off and try a ginkgo at the moment until there's further research. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So we were able to validate that 
you know, this likely did have some benefit in treating infections of the skin, especially those caused by Staphylococcus aureus. Um, but do we recommend it for future development as a drug or for people to use this as a remedy for staph infection? No, we don't recommend it because there is some toxicity um, involved. And, you know, there's a great saying, there are a lot of things in nature that will kill bacteria. But the question is, <laughs> how many of those can be used safely um, on the human is, is another another question. Yeah, just because something's natural doesn't mean it's safe. <laughs> Absolutely. And very fine Absolutely. line between dosage uh, and poison. Yeah. Well, you know, medicines are poisons. It comes down to dose and intent, right? So... I think we have to always keep that in mind. Um, and there, you know, I get questioned a lot about the other topical uses of, of plant compounds like essential oils. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the thing I caution people to know is that um, these are concentrated plant compounds. And so you don't ever want to put those directly on the skin. There are many examples of, of undiluted essential oils can cause what we call contact dermatitis mm -hmm. or kind of an allergic reaction at the site of application. And you can even get contact dermatitis from applying garlic, fresh garlic to the skin. So not even an extract or an oil of it. Um, just, yeah, the big lesson here is treat plants with care just because it's natural doesn't mean it's safe. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of medicinal potential that we can still explore um, in the plant uh, queendom. Absolutely. That's the other, other side of the coin is that it, people can either dismiss herb or plant medicine as either too toxic or not effective. Um, mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. so much potential for medicines from plant sources, particularly if they've been used for uh, many, many years with traditional knowledge, work, working out how the best way is to use them. Yeah, I mean, I think that the most recent estimates are that we have around 391,000 species of plants on Earth, and roughly 7% of those are used in traditional medicine or have been used by humans as a form of medicine. This is from um, one of the recent Q Say the World's Plants reports. And, you know, as someone that's very familiar with the um, scientific assessment of the medicinal potential of plants, I can tell you that we have not even begun to scratch the surface. I mean, I would estimate we only have a few hundred, if that, um, species that have been investigated in a really in-depth way um, through the lens of Western science. And so there's tremendous space for investigation, for innovation, and for future scientists to really dive in. And as I mentioned, also, we now have better and better tools to look at these even when they are present in these more complex um, formulations um, using tools like proteomics and metabolomics to um, look at their chemical makeup and also their impact on different systems. Yeah, we've got much better tools now um, because plant medicine, uh, plants as medicines did take a bit of a not a pause, but it wasn't very popular over the last couple of decades because of issues, I guess, with tools, but also with uh, problems with what we discussed before, such as benefit sharing and intellectual property. But what do you see is the future of um, plants as medicines? Do you think it will become a much more popular research resource in the future? And how long do you think it will take? Yeah, I mean, my hope is that Yes. I mean, there's, again, there's so much to explore. We now have better tools to do such exploration. Um, we also, I think there's a, there's a growing recognition that natural products or 
compounds that come from natural sources, whether it's from plants or marine organisms or from microbes, that these have the capacity to build molecules that are unlike anything that any chemist could ever dream up in a, in a synthetic chemistry lab. And so, you know, they can be amazing resources for what we call chemical blueprints, right, to get those chemical structures to then do manipulative work on to improve the pharmacological activity of these molecules or to um, reduce their toxicity um, for a variety of different um, applications. And, you know, many of the, the molecules, the drugs that are in the World, Health's organi- World Health Organization's list of essential medicines were originally discovered in plants or are modeled after compounds that are found in plants. So I think history is on our side. I think the tools are on our side. And, you know, one of the reasons that I really am happy to do this kind of science communication work um, on podcasts and, and things is I hope that someone listening here will will take on the charge. You know, we need more students um, and more scientists to take a dive into this fascinating area of research because there's just so much to be done. Thank you. And I think that's a really lovely and positive note to end on. So uh, I'd really like to thank you for your time for today, telling us about all of your amazing research. And for everyone here, we'll be posting some of Cassandra's and her team's papers and some links to develop themes that we mentioned today if you want to read more. Uh, But thank you very much. Thank you, Kim. That was really fun. Thanks for listening and remember that we have an associated blog at www.inpursuitofplants.co.uk where you can find out more. Thank you.